This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Athletes Unfiltered, Season 2. It's the new podcast from Strava, the world's best app for runners and cyclists. And this season, we've got an incredible series of stories from the Strava community. And when I say we, I mean, for the last few months, the podcast team here at Outside has been working with the folks at Strava on these stories. They're all about running, cycling, and ultra-marathoning, so we've been helping out. And there's some stuff in here that I'm actually kind of jealous that they got to first. Like Myrna Valerio, about what it's like to be an overweight ultramarathoner. I already know that I'm fat, so you don't need to tell me that. I am an ultramarathoner, so please don't make assumptions about me. Please don't ask me to exercise because I exercise. Or Lorenz Tendam, who struggles to find balance as a professional bike racer. I don't wish it to anybody I know, you know, close to me, because it's like, it's like you've been into a war zone. Or Brian and Tom Williams. A father-son team who took on the Comrades Ultramarathon in South Africa, even after Brian had been kicked out of the country. I think we're going to do it. If we do it and if we succeed, it'll just be, it'll be the fulfillment of a dream. It'll put to rest many of the ghosts of my past. It's a series that's not so much about how to change your life to better push your limits, but about how pushing your limits can change your life. The first episode of Athletes Unfiltered Season 2 is out now with more episodes coming every other week this summer. Find it and subscribe in your favorite podcast app, whichever one you're listening on right now. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. Last year, around this time, we shared an episode of the series Bundyville with you. It was about the Bundy family, who'd been at the center of two standoffs to the federal government, in Nevada at their ranch, and in Oregon at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. These two events had kind of become flashpoints in the debate about public lands in the West, and there was a round of dialogue about questions like, should ranchers be running cattle out there? Should desert lands be preserved as habitat for endangered species? Who owns the middle of nowhere? If you listen through that whole series, and we can actually tell by the numbers that a lot of you did, by the time you get to the end, the questions had changed a little bit. It wasn't about public lands so much as anti-government violence. This conflict started out being about the Bundys and where they could graze cattle. But by the end, it was bigger, and about the militias, religious fundamentalists, and conspiracy theorists that had responded when the Bundys put out a call. For the last year, reporter Leah Satilli has been following this new thread. Reporting not on the Bundys, but on the people who are taking the radical ideas of the Bundys even further. You may have noticed a lot of right-wing violence in the news this last year. Shootings at synagogues and mosques. Bombs being mailed to prominent liberals. When it comes to extremist violence, 2018 was actually one of the most violent years in America since 1970. So, Leah wanted to know about this violence. Where it was coming from. Who was carrying it out. And why. And now, a year later, we've got another season of Bundyville to share with you that roams all over the American West. This is another project that the team here at Outside has been helping with, so we're actually going to play the first two episodes for you, back to back. But unlike the first season, that ended up really far from where it started, season two, by the end, is right back where it began, in the small rural town of Panaca, Nevada. A quick warning to people who may be listening with kids or triggered by this topic, these episodes have some mild swearing, 
graphic violence, and discussions of racist ideologies. So just keep that in mind. Here's Leah. So what if I told you that in the summer of 2016, in a rural western town, there was a bombing you never heard about? 911, what is your emergency? Hi, someone, someone is shot in my house. There's a bomb in my house. Ma'am, ma'am, take a breath for me, okay? And I I can barely understand you. It happened in Panaca, Nevada, a town about three hours north of Las Vegas, right on the border with Utah. He said he was going to kill you? He said he was going to blow the house up. He said his car was full of explosives and he was going to blow my house up. Okay, are you away from the home? It was July 13th, 2016, around 8 o'clock in the evening. One of those warm summer nights that still feels like the middle of the day. Tiffany Clough was inside her house with her three daughters when a man came to the door and said he was going to blow her house up. She should get the kids and leave. The man then lit the fuse on the bomb he'd put inside the house, walked to his car, got inside, lit another bomb, and shot himself in the head. Then everything blew up. Ma'am? Shrapnel went everywhere, curving in long arcs over the town. Just down the street, the county sheriff saw black smoke and a mushroom cloud billowing into the sky. But I do need some additional information from you, okay? Okay, I need some help up here. So she calls, we have only one dispatcher at a time. She calls back to the jail, I need help up here right now. And you start hearing 911 starts going crazy. All the lines tied up, all the... All the 911 lines, all the administrative lines, all of a sudden just, you couldn't, all you got was a busy signal when you tried to call in. That's, that's Panaka's sheriff, Kerry Lee. He lives down the street, and he had no idea what was going on or who was involved. But Tiffany Clough, she knew the bomber. Is there anyone injured, or do you see anyone injured? Like the guy who came, his name was Glenn Jones. Who came into your house? He said he was going to kill himself and blow up our house. From Long Reads and Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is Bundyville, The Remnant. I'm Leah Satilli. It was about 8 o'clock in the evening, just a normal summer evening, people out walking, you know, kids riding bikes, people mowing their lawns, and just a normal, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. Sheriff Lee was just standing in his yard with his dog when it happened. So he yanked his dog inside, grabbed the keys to his patrol rig, and drove toward the chaos. You know, my mind is like try, going 100 miles an hour tr- trying to figure out what in the world. And with, you know, at that time, 28 years of law enforcement, I mean, I'd seen a lot and been experienced a lot, and I'm still trying to comprehend what in the world is going on here. You know, cars blow up like that in a movie, okay? When you see a movie, that's how cars blow up. They don't blow up like that. Panaka gets its share of loud noises from a nearby Air Force base, but Sheriff Lee said he knew right away this was something different. And I literally felt it in my chest. I felt the concussion in my chest. Then I could see the mushroom cloud coming up over there, and I thought, what in the world? And I could hear the I could hear the power. <clears throat> you know, I could hear that, I thought. This was the last place that anyone expected a bomb to go off. Tiffany Clough recognized the bomber, but no one else had any idea what was going on. 
it was Sheriff Lee's job to respond and figure it out. So I grabbed the keys to my patrol rig, and by the time I got to my patrol car, the second explosion happened. And the more he told us about it, the crazier the story got. And we pulled up, and of course, people from the community were already pulling their vehicles in, and we actually had to weave through cars to get into the, to where the house is. And uh, we were waved down, say, hey, stop, 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 you're gonna run over body parts. I said, what? You mean we're gonna run over body parts? And that's when they said, look over there. I looked over there and there was a set of legs from the belt down laying inside the road. The first bomb blew up the house of Tiffany and her husband, Josh Clough. They were nurses in town and lived there with their kids. Josh wasn't home when it happened and the rest of the family escaped just in time. The second bomb was in a car parked next to the house. And the man inside, the bomber, was Glenn Jones, a former nurse who used to work under Josh at the hospital. Sheriff Lee pulled up to a scene that was absolute mayhem. I mean, and like I said, there was body parts everywhere. Sheriff Lee is a guy with many jobs in Panaka. And when he arrived, he wasn't sure which job he was supposed to be doing. Um, okay, so this is a small, small town, small community, small county. And uh, we all wear different hats, okay? And uh, you're going to probably get a chuckle out of this, but I am also the fire chief here in Panaka. Okay. Volunteer. It's all volunteer. So you are also, as sheriff, you're also the coroner? I'm the county coroner also. Okay. That is correct. Any yep. other hats you wear we should know about? Uh, I'm on the uh, emergency planning commission for the county. Um, I try to somewhat hold a family down. Uh, I help my my father run the ranch <laughs> so so between all that i don't have a lot yeah, of spare time <laughs> a little bit between midnight and 4 a.m <laughs> okay so he's at the scene and he's got body parts that means coroner hat sheriff lee told me and my producer ryan hass that it's his job to identify whose limbs were scattered everywhere but he can't really id anyone with just some legs and we did not actually find the upper torso, which is what we needed for identification. I don't care about the leg. I mean, I do care, but that's not my, I need, I need the torso. I need legs. I need, I mean, I need fingerprints. I need dental records. I need that type of stuff to be able to identify somebody. It took investigators about 14 hours to find the top half of Glenn Jones. And when they did, he wasn't laid out on his back and easy to identify. He was in a tree in the neighbor's yard. Yeah. Bizarre as it is. Yeah. But even more bizarre was that when they found the body, it had these strange tattoos on it. During the coroner's investigation, he was identified by a couple of ways. Um, he, uh, we were able to get fingerprints. We were able to get some, some dental. And um, crazy enough, tattooed on his chest, said DNR, which do not resuscitate. My, that's my medical training is DNR means do not resuscitate and phone number for the victim's house, or the victim the victim of the house, his phone number. Very bizarre. Why do you think that was there? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know how to venture a guess on that. I, I just, that's one of the most bizarre things uh, that I've encountered, you know, on a death to have somebody tattoo something like that on them. I don't know. I don't know. He had, he had a lot of medical training, so I know. I know that's why I think DNR was doing it because he knows what DNR meant. Okay, anybody knows it in the medical field. That's what DNR is. Do not resuscitate. Can I ask a stupid question? When you guys saw the phone number tattooed, did you call the number? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think we looked it up in our system and saw that it belonged to Josh. 
Why did this guy have your phone number? No, I think my wife. After the first season of Bundyville last year, I had no intention of making any more. I'd wanted to find out why the Bundy family would take on the government, twice, and why all these really different militia groups flocked to their side. And for the most part, I got answers. The Bundys tapped into an anti-government worldview that exists just under the surface out west and created an image of the true American cowboy for people to rally around. But after they won their court cases, the Bundys started to disappear. They'd gotten what they wanted, and they're still running cows on public land without paying their grazing fees. End of story, right? But the anti-government groups who'd come to their side, they didn't go away. The Bundys brought together the Oath Keepers, Sovereign Citizens, Three Percenters, and the right-wing media, all the people who think the government is out to get them, basically. The catch-all term for these groups is the Patriot Movement. And that movement didn't go away just because Clive and Bundy went back to ranching. So before you go any further, if you haven't listened to that season, go do that now. Season two is going to build off a lot of the things we talked about last time. And actually, the first question I had when I came across the story of the bombing in Panaka was whether or not it was connected to the Bundys and the Patriot movement and everything from season one. Was this extremist violence? Some form of domestic terrorism? Or just a dispute between coworkers? There wasn't any obvious connection. It was just this weird thing. But it's not like bombs blow up every day in this country. And I wanted to know more. So producer Ryan Hass and I flew out there. Panaka is this gravelly town on the Nevada side of the border with Utah, a desert outpost that was founded in the 1860s by Mormon pioneers. It's the only town in Nevada that's dry, meaning you can't buy alcohol there, and one of just two in the state where gambling is prohibited. And there's a sign at the edge of town listing the Ten Commandments, like, that'll keep the devil out. So, Panaka is God country, and it's such a Western cliché that I literally watched a tumbleweed roll down the middle of the street. It's a place where you know your neighbor, and you know that really knowing him means understanding what's your business and what isn't. Ask someone about Glenn Jones, and they'll say they knew him. Nice guy. Blew up a house one time. It was strange and sad. More than one Panakin tells me they wouldn't want to speculate about why a bombing occurred in their town. But then offered an opinion anyway. For the most part, people think the bomb could have been a loud, messy expression of a workplace grievance between Glenn Jones and Josh Clough. Josh, at one time, was Glenn's boss at the local hospital, and they were good friends. Glenn even helped Josh build his house in Panaka. But about a year before the bombing, Glenn left his job at the hospital. Later, he also lost his nursing license for mishandling morphine. So people think maybe Glenn blamed Josh. I'd heard that and that he had a grudge with him. Glenn Wadsworth's family home is next door to the Cluffs. He was out mowing the lawn when the bombing happened and was the last person to see Glenn Jones alive. The gentleman got out of that car and I watched him get out of that car, walk around the back of the house and he walked back in. You know, he waved at me and... um, He waved at you? Well, I was mowing the lawn. Wadsworth told us that this weird feeling came over him while he was mowing. 
that he should skip the rest of the front yard and move around to the back. So he did. And there's no question that I wouldn't be here if I'd have mowed the east side and then the south side. Saved my life that night for sure. In fact, nobody but the bomber was hurt in the blast. This was a common story I heard. Everyone remembers where they were that day and how no one got hurt, even when shrapnel rained down like hail out of the clear blue sky. The worst thing that happened was a boy who was riding his bike by the Cluff's house got smacked with a piece of something and was knocked off his bike. He got a bruise. I mean, really, I mean, you probably could look at that kid's shoulder and there wouldn't even be a scar. That kid's mom works at the local bed and breakfast. She made us pancakes when we were there. And she told us she thought the angels of Panaka's ancestors were looking out for the town that day. For some people in Panaka, that's really all the explanation they need. God kept them safe. There aren't any official answers anyway. Sheriff Lee tells me that shortly after the bombing, it became an FBI investigation. And all the FBI told me when I asked for comment was that it's, quote, the policy of the FBI not to confirm or deny the existence of an investigation. It was clear nobody in town could really answer my questions, but people were still thinking about it. A couple people asked me to call them if I found out what really happened between Glenn Jones and Josh Clough. It's only after I left Panaka that I maybe found an answer, an answer that pointed to something much bigger than a petty disagreement between coworkers. After visiting Panaka, I started calling around. Glenn Jones had been living in Kingman, Arizona, in an RV park right before the bombing happened. I called all the tattoo shops in town, thinking maybe someone would remember doing a weird phone number tattoo. And while my calls did pique the curiosity of a lot of Kingman tattoo artists, no one knew anything about it. I also looked for Jones's relatives online, but turned up nothing substantial. What I did learn is that Jones got some training in field artillery during his 11 years in the Army and National Guard, but he never saw combat. In fact, he never left his home state of Colorado during his service. In Kingman, Jones was as well-liked by the people there as he was in Panaka, remembered for his deference more than any other quality. The manager of the RV park where he lived told me that just days before the bombing, Jones came into his office and paid the rent for a neighbor going through chemo. He told the manager not to say who did it. And in Panaka, not only did no one say a negative thing to me about Jones, most wouldn't even call him by his name. They referred to him as the suspect or the person. The national news didn't cover it either. This was a bombing on American soil. And sure, no one was hurt but the bomber. But it's hard to imagine, if he'd been brown or black or anyone else but a white guy, that this would have been a non-story. After the bombing, the Kingman Police Department raided Glenn Jones's trailer, so I got copies of their police reports. They found bomb-making materials inside and a few spiral-bound journals with Jones's name on the cover. Inside one, there were diagrams for a bomb. One detective said, quote, the entries indicated that Glenn Jones had been approached by a subject identified as Josh, who offered to pay him to construct an explosive device. The intended target, the officer wrote, was identified as 4th of July BLM Field Office. 
But here's where things get murky, because the 4th of July came and went that year, and nothing happened. And by July 13th, Jones had decided instead to target Josh Clough. Here's Sheriff Lee. He, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I truly still to this day don't truly know what the victim and the suspect's true relationship was. I know they were friends. At one point in time, they were very good friends. I wondered if there was a chance Jones or Clough might have had some beef with the federal government, some reason they would have wanted to bomb a BLM field office. And it turned out, there was. Hello, everyone. This is LaVoy Fincombe, One Cowboy Stand for Freedom. And I promised that I'd make more videos when things progressed between me and the federal government, uh, the BLM in particular, and they have. Before the 2016 takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, nobody really knew LaVoy Finnicum. By the time he went to Oregon, the most public-facing presence he had were the YouTube videos he'd been posting for a few months about his fight with the Bureau of Land Management. Remember, he's the guy from Malheur who was killed reaching for a gun in his jacket during a traffic stop at a roadblock set up by police to arrest the leaders of the occupation. For now, what you need to know is that by July 2016, when the bomb went off in Nevada at the Clough home, Finnegan was dead, and the Patriot movement was talking about him as a martyr, proof of a tyrannical government murdering Americans. Everywhere you look in the Patriot movement, you'll see Finnicum's cattle brand. On hats, shirts, tattoos, belt buckles, flags, bumper stickers. People write songs about him. I'm only talking about a cowboy stand for freedom. He's become the figurehead of a movement. In their report, Kingman police wrote that there was an entry in Jones's notebook indicating that Lavoie Finnicum's death was a possible motive for the planned attack on the BLM office, and that, quote, Josh is the cousin of Lavoie Finnicum. I was able to confirm that Josh Clough is related to Finnicum, but that's not proof he was involved. So I asked Sheriff Lee, was Clough angry at the government over his cousin's death? He said he couldn't say. But he told us a story about a time, way before the bombing, that Lee did see an anti-government side to Clough. He didn't want to give us too many details, since it involves someone having a medical crisis. But the gist was that, at the hospital, Sheriff Lee asked Clough to help give medical attention to someone who couldn't decide to ask for it themselves. And Clough wasn't having it. He got really angry, started yelling. I got a little bit of an eye-opening about how Josh felt about government overreach. So, just to be clear, Glenn Jones blew up the house of Josh Clough, who was related to Lavoie Finnicum. Finnicum's death, according to the police report, was possibly Glenn Jones's motive for the bombing of a BLM building. But that bombing never happened. Jones targeted Clough instead. It's unclear whether Clough and Jones were working together to bomb the BLM building at first, and something went wrong, or if Jones was working alone and decided to bomb Clough's house for some other reason. What was Clough's role in all this? Was he ever investigated? I don't know, because the FBI won't even tell me if there is an investigation. So what happened between the two of them? 
we know they were involved financially. Police found a contract for 22 acres of land that Jones bought from Clough for $50,000. There was also an account that would pay out to Clough in the event of Jones's death, but I can't tell if any of that connects to the bombing. Clough has never given any straight answers about Jones or Lavoie or a bomb at a BLM office. Shortly after the bombing, the Cloughs packed up what few belongings they could salvage and moved to Idaho. Again, police have not said that the family has done anything wrong. They only confirmed that they did, in fact, serve a search warrant here at the family's new house and also at the family's old house, the site of the explosion. We are Back in Panaka, there's nothing where the house used to be, just an empty lot filled with mud. I walked the whole perimeter of it while we were there, thinking some answer about what really happened might present itself. But all I got were muddy shoes and nervous looks from a guy standing quietly on his porch across the street, watching Ryan and I poke around like weirdos. So after I got home, I got in touch with Clough on Facebook and asked for an interview. Finally, after a few messages, he wrote back, quote, we're just happy and not trying to dig up the past, he said. I typed out a response immediately, that I wasn't trying to compromise that happiness, but that it seemed like his side of the story hadn't really come out. What, in his mind, was the truth? Why the hell did Glenn Jones have Josh's phone number tattooed on his body? I hit send. But by then, Clef had blocked me. Months later, I found an email for him. I reached out again, and I tried one more time to get Clef to say something. I sent him the evidence I had and asked whether the bombing was about his cousin, Lavoy Finicum. He responded, quote, Those were terrible times for my family which we were trying to move past. FBI did their due diligence and cleared me of any involvement. Have a nice night, and please be respectful of what my family has gone through. So here's what we know. However the Panaka bombing came to target Josh and Tiffany Clough instead of a BLM building, it appeared to have begun as a response to the death of Lavoie Finicum. It was, in some ways, a continuation of the occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, which was itself a ripple effect of the standoff at Bundy Ranch. In the years since the Bundy's high-profile standoffs, there have been more and more acts of extremist violence popping up in the news, and it seems like each time, the radical ideas that inform the patriot movement come up too. So let's turn to the news, and the man suspected of sending a wave of mail bombs across the country is in handcuffs tonight. Like a Florida man who mailed bombs to prominent liberals like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and George Soros because he thinks they're a part of a shadowy cabal. He's also active on social media and often posted anti-liberal messages and conspiracy theories to Twitter. Or a Georgia man who killed a cop and considered himself a sovereign citizen, a nation unto himself. He claimed to be a sovereign citizen, meaning he didn't recognize police authority. Or the shooter in New Zealand who opened fire on two mosques because of what he saw as a so-called white genocide. New Zealand is a nation stricken tonight. A self-declared white supremacist gunned down Muslims at prayer today. Not to give the Bundys too much credit, but no bombs went off at Malheur. No shots were fired at Bunkerville. So in this season of Bundyville, we're not actually talking to any Bundys. Instead, we're talking about the people who picked up where they left off the remnant of their movement. And then we're following the violence, following the ripple outward, 
from Lavoie's death through Panaka to try and figure out what's coming next and where it'll be coming from. What the Panaka bombing probably is, is a tiny window, too small to see the whole picture, but a window nonetheless into extremist ideologies and how those ideologies become violent. But I couldn't ask Glenn Jones why he blew up the Clough's house or if the bombing was supposed to send some sort of message. But there was someone else, someone who is at Bundy Ranch, who knew Lavoy Finnicum, and who also tried to blow up a government building in the summer of 2016. And when I called him up, he said he'd be happy to tell me anything I wanted to know. It's February 2019, and I'm at a truck stop outside Salt Lake City, Utah. It's just after 4 o'clock. The sun's already going down. A range of snow-covered mountains looms nearby. Producer Ryan Haas and I have come here to meet with a guy named Bill Keebler. And we're nervous. Are you recording? Uh, that's okay. Is it cool for him to start? Oh, yeah. No. Okay. yeah, I'm not trying to... Yeah, this is... Keebler has been involved with the Patriot Movement since Bunkerville, where he says he ran security. Afterward, he started his own militia. 57-year-old William Keebler is known by the FBI as a commander of a citizen militia group called the Patriots Defense Force. In fact, Keebler has been portrayed as one of the most dangerous people in the Patriot movement. According to the court documents, FBI undercover agents infiltrated Keebler's group and took part in field training exercises. They say Keebler talked to members of his militia about, quote, going on the offensive. In June of 2016, just a month before Glenn Jones blew up the Clough family home in Panaka, Keebler hit the button to detonate what he thought was a bomb set to destroy a building owned by the Bureau of Land Management. Thought is the key word there. It turns out his bomb was a fake, given to him by undercover FBI agents who had embedded in his group. Even before his arrest, Bill Keebler thought there was some grand conspiracy at play and that, for some reason, the government was out to get him personally. The thing is, it turned out he was 100% right about that. From Long Reads and Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is Bundyville. I'm Leah Satilli. When Glenn Jones shot himself in the head, waiting for his bombs to blow up in Panaka, he took with him answers to all sorts of questions about why he did what he did. But by talking to Keebler, I hoped we might learn something about how right-wing bombers operate and what they're thinking. Why does someone in the Patriot movement light the fuse or press the button? And why now? Keebler and Jones had both set off their bombs in the summer of 2016, four to five months after the Malheur occupation in Oregon had resolved. So what changed after Malheur? Can I get you anything to drink? Uh, I can smoke some coffee real quick. Bill Keebler looks like a shriveling old ranch hand. He's got leathery skin, a smoker's cough, says he beat cancer once, and has had four heart procedures. 2013, I had a massive heart attack and had to go in for emergency open heart surgery. We're at a Denny's, tucked into the corner of the truck stop. For most of his working years, Keebler was a horse wrangler and a hunting guide with his own company. Critter, getter, outfitters. I'm from Georgia. I call everything critters. You said critter? We ease into the conversation. Ryan and I are just trying to get a feel for who we're talking to, what we can and can't ask. But it turns out Keebler's a storyteller, and he's happy to talk all about his past. 
He's got stories from his time in the Army. Oh, 11 Bravo okay. Infantry. Uh, went to a lot of specialized training in Fort Benning and went to Germany. I landed there, and I think on a Friday, Saturday morning, I woke up on a Russian communist Russian border. And he says he also knows his way around computers. I do. I used to do code and stuff. Oh, okay. Okay. Encryption. They can't break it. I see. I see. And they still haven't broken it. Huh? <laughs> Nothing I mean good, but anyway. He even says he has a black belt in kung fu. Studied numerous arts. I ranked black belt in four different styles. Um, and in 86, I think it was 86, I went before a board of masters and I presented a new system. He says he created his own system of kung fu. You can tell Keebler likes to think of himself as a kind of elderly Rambo. You're an arms reach, I own you. And I should be clear, I wasn't able to verify most of his stories, but I also wasn't in Utah to figure out whether he got third place in the kung fu world championships. I wanted to know what happened with the FBI, but first, that meant convincing him that we weren't FBI agents. People are afraid to talk to people like y'all. I'm going to be honest with you, it wouldn't surprise me if both of you pulled out the badge. They just wouldn't shot me anymore after what I've seen. Because in Keebler's world, everyone's a potential threat, and you can't be too careful. He's been burned once already. I ask him why he's even telling me his story. Because if I don't, it's going to die with me. I've been on borrowed time for years. I came here because I wanted to hear Keebler's side of the bombing and understand how and why things became violent. I couldn't get answers from Glenn Jones, who police said had wanted to target a government building. So I had hoped Keebler would help me understand why a person would try to detonate a bomb. But just a few minutes into the interview, what I'm really wondering is, how did the FBI decide to focus on this guy? Is this old man in poor health really the most dangerous person in the Patriot movement? If you skip over the special forces training, the computer hacking, and martial arts inventing, the verifiable part of Bill Keebler's story starts in 2014, when he spent about two weeks in Bunkerville, Nevada, on Clive and Bundy's ranch. The family and some militias were facing off with the Bureau of Land Management because the Bundys hadn't paid their grazing fees, and the BLM had come to collect their cattle. The fact that Keebler was there was later used by government prosecutors in court as evidence of his extremism. Back then, Keebler says he was a member of the Oath Keepers, a militia associated with the Patriot Movement. And by his account, at Bundy Ranch, he was a bodyguard for the family. He claims he's the guy who kept things from descending into violence. Believe it or not, I actually stopped a lot of people from, a lot of them play up there. Um... I stopped some people that wanted to shoot people. One of them got mad about it, put a gun in my face. He wanted to start the war. If he has to, I'm gonna, he said, I'm gonna fire a shot just to get it started. Because if one shot had ever went off up there, it's done. It don't matter if it was a firecracker or backfire. And that's what everybody's, oh my God, I hope a car don't have a backfire, you know? Or somebody throws a damn firecracker on the ground. Things with that close volatile. I mean, it was, you know, ready. I don't want to rehash Bundy Ranch, but the long and short of it is no cars backfired, no one fired any shots, and the government backed down. And after the Bundy's cows were released and the BLM agents left, Keebler was pumped up on the Patriots' big win. To me, it was one of the biggest events in this country that has, in its history, short of the Boston Tea Party. Um, 
I'm not comparing it to the Civil War, not like that, but it was a wake-up call. So in the following months, back at home in Utah, Keebler started his own militia. He called it Patriots Defense Force, or PDF. It was a group of half a dozen or so guys that got together mostly to talk about self-reliance, basically. They did survival training, practiced target shooting. They were anti-government preppers who talked a lot about going off-grid, about what to do when shit hit the fan. Keebler even showed people how to raise chickens and rabbits for meat. Then, a few months later, Keebler says he got a phone call from someone he'd met at Bunkerville, Lavoy Finnicum. He wanted me to basically come to his place and give him the support that we gave the Bundys. You'll recall that Lavoy Finnicum was a leader of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge occupation and was eventually killed by police at a roadblock in Oregon, and that he was the cousin of Josh Clough, whose house was blown up in Panaca. But back then, Finnicum was just a rancher in Arizona, and Keebler said he was building up to his own Bunkerville-style standoff with the BLM. I can't fully verify what was said in this phone call, but I do know that around this time, in the late summer of 2015, Finnicum was becoming agitated with the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM, the federal government has said, has exclusive legislative power over these lands. He was making that pretty obvious on his YouTube page. Now, none of these bureaucrats do we elect here in Mojave County. None of them are accountable to us in Mojave County. This is the definition of tyranny. From the way Keebler tells the story, Finnicum was not only upset, he was looking for a fight. And Keebler, who advertises his supposed expertise in military tactics to anyone who'll listen, was happy to bring his militia to come help him prepare for the confrontation. At, at the Bundys, we got there after the fact. If we knew it was coming, we could be there prepared. Because they were actually, uh, apparently they were going to come and just take all his cattle. But it's pretty unlikely that anyone was coming for Finnicum's cattle. Records from the BLM showed Finnicum only owed about $1,400 in grazing fees. By comparison, Clive and Bundy owed more than a million dollars, accrued over 20 years, before the BLM planned a cattle roundup that led to the standoff near his ranch. But that didn't stop Finnicum from preparing for the worst, or Keebler from helping him do it. They came up with a plan that was different than what the Bundys had done. At Finnicum's ranch, they decided they would let the federal agents onto the land where he grazed his cattle, and then spring a trap. Now, I don't mean ambush, assault, and kill, and shoot, none of that crap. See, that's where everybody tries to ad-lib shit. The plan was to let the BLM on the property, and then use an excavator to destroy the road behind them, so their truck couldn't get out. At a certain place, so when they come up the hill with them cattle, they can't get up the hill. What Keebler is saying sounded way more extreme of an approach than what I saw at Bundy Ranch or in Oregon. He was saying they would trap federal agents. And I had to wonder, then what? Were they going to keep them? Hold them hostage? Why trap them in the first place? But before I could get an answer, Keebler told me that another member of his militia wanted to blow them all up. Brad Miller's idea. No, let's wait till they get right there and blow that. Well, he just, let's just blow them up. Keebler says Brad Miller wanted to set off a bomb at the roadblock, but he had a few problems with that. First of all, you're killing men's cattle, dumbass. Two, you're killing whoever's in that truck. But Brad Miller wasn't just a cattle-killing dumbass. He was actually an undercover FBI agent. In fact, 
At varying times, there were three confidential informants and three undercover FBI agents in Keebler's militia. So if you take away Keebler, the FBI agents, and informants, there were, at most, just three members of PDF militia. All this time, Finnecum and Keebler had been planning a confrontation with federal agents with the help of federal agents. By the spring of 2016, federal agents had been in Keebler's militia for more than a year, trying to, quote, take his temperature, according to text messages between agents. On the surface, it seemed like a standard FBI undercover operation. Wait for the bad guys to do bad stuff and then take them down. But the more I talked to Keebler and the more the government blocked me from accessing his court records, the more I started to wonder about what role the government was really playing in the PDF militia. Between the two agents and Leonard, the informant, they became the most active. You know, they, like when we went down to Arizona to LaVoy's, they paid for the whole trip. But, um, I mean, they were a good financial support and we needed that. According to court documents, the FBI agent who went by Brad Miller taunted Keebler. This was the same guy who Keebler says had the idea to blow up federal agents on Finnecum's property. And he said that the Patriots and PDF were just, quote, Facebook fucking Nazis. In other words, guys who have a lot to say online, but never take action in real life. Keebler, in response, suggested the group do some recon of potential targets in Salt Lake City. Agent Brad Miller, who court documents say was one of the most active members of the militia, suggested targeting Muslims. But Keebler said he didn't know how to find any. So Miller offered to Google a mosque. The next thing I know, we're pulling up to the, uh, they went to a mosque first. Here in Salt Lake, yeah. right? Okay. And I said, look, dude, you've lost your mind. And I'm looking around. Miller or to Bloom? I said to all of them, okay. you've lost your effing minds. And I mainly to brag, because we were, Kind of clashing there. He said, but what would it take? Why couldn't we? I said, well, I'll tell you why you can't. I said, you see that thing behind you over your left shoulder? Looks up into this big-ass tower. You'd be amazed what's in them things. Cameras, monitor buildings and everything. I said, that's one reason you can't. You never get in a mile of this place. Second, look at the terrain. And I'm starting to break it down and tell them. And I said, now, you know the problem you got, look over, and, you know, people were walking around, coming in outside, and they started playing basketball. And I said, you see that? Those are kids. There's women and children here playing basketball and shit. I'm like, y'all have lost, and again. <laughs> so the group moved on and drove past a Bureau of Land Management office. Miller suggested that they mail a bomb to it or use a truck bomb to blow it up. Dude, what? Have y'all gone? See now. That's BLM building. You know how many people are in there? Do you know what's in there? This whole scouting mission was going nowhere. They thought Keebler would take the lead in blowing up government buildings, but he just wasn't biting. And if it sounds like the FBI was pushing Keebler to take some sort of drastic action, it turns out even some of their own agents were worried about that. In court documents, there are records of text messages one of the other undercover FBI agents, who went by the name Jake Davis, sent to his handler right after this happened. He wrote, quote, I hope we didn't open Pandora's box in a way by taking Keebler to a mosque he might not have found on his own. 
I'm worried about our liability if he happens to go back sometime on his own. In another text, Davis worried about Miller's continued taunting of Keebler. Quote, I'm all for pushing him, but we can't sound more radical, he wrote. To me, that's what it sounds like we're doing. Later, he wrote, I'm not down with giving him all the ideas, like when Miller told him that we would have to mail a bomb to the BLM office or drive a car bomb up to it. We can't be putting crazy ideas into a crazy guy's head. But they did more than just put ideas in his head. Over the course of their investigation, the FBI agents posing as militia members drove Keebler around the West to Patriot Movement gatherings. They paid for trainings. They were the majority of his militia. And then, finally, in the spring of 2016, Keebler started to buy in. He told the militia that they were going to target BLM facilities way out in the middle of nowhere, specifically a BLM building that he had scouted near Finnicum's ranch. Finnicum, by then, had been killed in a traffic stop in Oregon. Over the next couple of months, the FBI made him a fake pipe bomb. And then, on June 21, 2016, Keebler and some of his militia traveled to Arizona and set the bomb outside the building. Keebler pushed the button on a fake detonator the FBI gave him. And then, the next morning, they arrested him. These cops had picked me up, brought me in, and I'm handcuffed. And this guy comes in, dressed up, biggest shitting grin on his face. Loud as he could. Mr. Keebler, been trying to bust your sorry ass for two years. They had busted him, and all it took was three agents, three paid informants, and two years of pushing Keebler before they convinced him to set off a fake bomb way out in the middle of the desert. It almost makes you wonder if the FBI hadn't been around. Would Keebler's militia have just kept on raising chickens, cooking rabbits, and being Facebook Nazis? Entrapment is very hard to prove in court. Um, the burden is at first is on the uh, defense rather than on the prosecution to bring bring the case. This is Karen Greenberg. She's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School in New York City. I asked her about the legality of the FBI pushing a guy like Keebler. You, when you go to court or when you read the court documents, they look very much like, you know, somebody was placed in the midst of this group, was listening, and picked up information that was use, useful and, and usable, right? And then the, the other end of the spectrum, which is who provided the munitions, who provided the plot, who provided the ideology, who, et cetera, who, who really ran this if you look at the active elements of it. I just want to so note that Greenberg's primary focus is international terrorism and jihadi groups. But there's some crossover between the cases she's watched and the Keebler case. So, so like, is it common in the cases that you've watched like this that that someone will say, like, here's a bomb, or, hey, why don't we Google a mosque for you, or, hey, how about this, or do this, or, and, and, and so, in this case, this individual, Keebler, was like, I don't know, guys, like, you know, and then we, we went and interviewed him, and he said, I guess I just got it in my mind, that's what I should do at a certain point. Okay, so the FBI's defense on this, and it's worth thinking about, because it's got some, it's got legitimacy to it, which is, look, I could have been Al-Qaeda, and if I could get him to do it, don't you think an Al-Qaeda guy could get him to do it? And it works with a jury. It works. And because what they say to the jury is, would you have said yes to this FBI guy? So maybe that's the logic to the Keebler case. That if the feds could get to Keebler, someone with a plan and a target and connections to a bomb maker could too. So he belonged in jail. 
But this interpretation of the law is fairly new and controversial. The basic rules that uh, they're called the Attorney General Guidelines uh, required an FBI agent to have a reasonable indication that criminal activity may occur. In the 1990s, Michael German was an undercover FBI agent who went inside militia groups in the Pacific Northwest. He works for the Brennan Center for Justice now, but his previous work was infiltrating white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups. German tells me that before 9-11, in order to investigate someone, the FBI needed a reasonable indication that that person was about to commit a crime. Pretty low standard, right? Most, most FBI agents wake, wake up in the morning pretty suspicious. <laughs> but after 9-11, the Bush administration wrote new guidelines, allowing the FBI to investigate pretty much anyone. Why would you want to investigate somebody you don't have a reasonable factual basis to believe is, are doing something wrong? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And, and clearly what it opens up is the opportunity to, to target people who, who you don't like. German says that in order to watch someone, all the FBI needs is a theory that maybe that person could commit a crime someday in the future. It, initially, it was mostly used against Muslims, but has broadened out because it's a successful tactic as far as the FBI is concerned. It has broadened out to other groups. And my concern with that is you're targeting the lowest hanging fruit, right? And that pretty much describes Keebler, the low hanging fruit. After sitting and talking with him for three hours, I'm not convinced he could put a bomb plot together. He didn't have any targets identified. He didn't know how to build a bomb. And when his defense attorney found those text messages of the FBI waffling about whether or not they were putting crazy ideas into a crazy guy's head, the government offered him a plea deal. Even Keebler says the FBI got to him. Well, they were hell-bent and determined to do something, and I guess I kind of let it get in my head that maybe if we did something to kind of let them know that it's kind of like a warning signal. There are two ways to look at Keebler. First, as a man with the potential to commit violence, because the FBI may have given him the bomb, but he still hit the button. And to be honest, it's easier to see him that way, as an office rocker militia member. But that's probably too easy of an answer, because whatever he did, he probably wouldn't have been able to do it without the FBI's help. So how much blame does he really deserve? Whichever version of Bill Keebler is more accurate, the guy we're talking to here at Denny's is a paranoid man who, thanks to the government, may actually be justified in that paranoia. At one point in our conversation, he went silent and then told us that we were under surveillance. And he basically told us, oh, shit. Okay. We're being watched. Right now? Yeah. Like a fed or an informant. Where? Did you just walk by? Did you see him? Oh, yeah. Huh? The guy in the day? Yeah, you seem just... Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. For two years, the FBI tracked Bill Keebler, and now he sees them everywhere. They're watching him when he smokes in his backyard, when he goes to the grocery store. They're hiding in plain sight, serving coffee at Denny's, just to get to him. It's not every day you talk to someone who's tried to bomb a building. And I have to say, for a while talking to Keebler, I felt like the FBI had totally missed the mark and basically manipulated an otherwise innocent man so they could get a conviction. But about an hour into our conversation, things took a hard turn, and he didn't seem so innocent anymore. 
In fact, it became very hard to talk to him. It happened when I asked him about how he thinks the federal government should work. Like, think about your ideal situation with the federal government and the state government. What would that look like? Like, what would that, what would that world be? running their own, themselves. Um, the government doing the job they were meant to be. The government's purpose is basically for uh, foreign affairs. He says that the government can do its thing, trading with China and Korea, but it has no damn business running Utah, Georgia, or Texas. Then he starts talking about how Muslims are taking over schools. You can't do the Pledge of Allegiance in our school, but now we've got Muslims praying and everything else in the hallways in our schools and in our classrooms. And teachers are now making kids dress up like Muslims. I asked Keebler to give me an example of where this was happening. But he just said... A number of places. Yeah. They have taken over whole cities. They want to stop prayer. They want to stop all the American stuff, the Boy Scouts and everything, making Islam. They're out in the streets right now with hundreds of them bowing. They're shutting down whole roads, and the cops are standing over making sure nobody interrupts them. Are you serious? That's what Bradley tanks are for. You get about 50 rednecks with four-wheel drive pickup trucks, we'll end that problem. Keebler is advocating for something that sounds like intimidation at best and slaughtering Muslims in the streets of America at the worst. And it's all informed by his conspiratorial worldview. Maybe this is the kind of talk that brought the FBI to him. They have their own cops now. They're dressed up. They got what looks like police cars and what looks like police uniforms, and they're going to do what they want. Now, there was a guy that was preaching Christianity to up there, and he's been arrested. That's on the internet right now. You need to do your homework. You think the federal, you think the federal government is involved in that, or you just think that? I know damn well they are. It should be no shock at this point to tell you that Keebler is also an ardent Donald Trump supporter. He loves him, and he hates Barack Obama. Thinks he's a part of some deep state plot to turn America into a Muslim-only nation. But his uh, the the agreement that they put him in the president is that he would make way for more Muslims to be able to get in the United States. That's what's actually come out recently. I wanted to news some reporters. So somewhere. he was made president so more Muslims could come into the U.S. That's what he, he arranged was. to be able to, like Soros is financing a lot of it. Um, a lot of this is about the New World Order. Uh, look at the pedophilia going on right now. They can kill a child hours after it's been born. They keep it alive long enough for the organs to develop, and then they kill the kid and harvest it for parts. At this point in our interview, Keebler is looking at Ryan and I like we're crazy. Like, how do we not know any of this? It's all over the internet. I can't believe you don't know none of this stuff. And we're looking at Keebler like, how crazy do you have to be to believe this stuff? At this point in our conversation, it was hard to know how to continue. Talking to Keebler, I feel like I understand how far down a conspiratorial rabbit hole you have to be in order to detonate a bomb. That helps me understand Glenn Jones, too. But at the same time, Keebler's a bigot, and that bigotry has clouded his entire perspective on the world. Keebler's whole life revolves around conspiracy theories, but in the world of militias and anti-government groups, this is actually nothing new. So we got on the phone with author Jesse Walker to help put a guy like Keebler in context. Walker wrote a book called The United States of Paranoia. 
I wanted to understand the role that conspiracies have played in militia groups throughout history. You know, in the Cold War era, um, right-wing conspiracy theories, too, you had groups like the John Birch Society um, sort of shifting from, in the 1960s, from, you know, fears where all the um, the enemy is based in Moscow to fears where the enemy is, you know, based in New York and uh, manipulating Moscow. And, and then in the and 90s, very, uh, after the Cold War and, ended, uh, and events like Ruby Ridge like and Waco a, happened, the conspiracy shifted uh, again. But in the 1990s, you lose the context of the Cold War. And so it's much easier to just sort of see Washington as the enemy, period. Um, you also have um, the rise of the Internet. And while I'm not someone who's, who argues that the Internet made people more paranoid, made people more conspiracist, I do think one thing that it definitely did was allow more mixing among um, all these different groups of people who had previously been much more um, separate from one another. You had Bill Keebler fits this description of the modern conspiracy theorist, someone looking for a target for their anger. He was in the army, fighting communism. When the Cold War ended, he had to look somewhere else and joined up with militias and other so-called patriot groups to fight the government. Now he's a foot soldier for Trump, and his new enemies are immigrants and Muslims and women and abortion doctors, the BLM and George Soros and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, the deep state. He lives in an acid bath of conspiracy theories. So I asked Keebler, where is all this going in his mind? What is the, like, shit hits the fan scenario? During the Obama administration, if he declared martial law, rally at me, rally around me, because that's our central command post, and we'll go from there. Uh, we start operations at that point. Uh, that would have been a shit hit the fan. Okay. Um, so what's the difference now? What's, what's the, what's the I think if Trump declares martial law, it would be in a more controlled manner. Uh, he's not coming after patriots. He's not coming after militia. Do you mean he's not coming after white people? No. <laughs> no, see, there you, there, there you go pushing the racist well, and that's bullshit. What, well, I'm, that's why I'm asking. No, it ain't sure. got nothing. I, people will say that. That's what. Keebler got angry when I asked him if this entire world of shaded conspiracies and government cabals is really just a veil for his racism. After he spent an hour telling wildly inaccurate stories about Sharia law and invasions at the border, how Muslims are a plague in a Christian nation like America, he tells me I'm off base to ask if this all really comes down to bigotry. Keebler has built his world around these extremist ideas, and he's not willing to back down from them. That much is clear when Ryan asks him a different question. What do you think happens if the Democrats impeach Trump or some kind of charges abroad. What do you think happens then with the Patriots? It's over. All bets off. Just from what I'm hearing and seeing on the internet, all bets are off. What does that mean? All bets are off. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. Bill Keebler, a guy who tried to blow up a government building and who lives on a steady stream of hate from the internet, says that he's had enough. If anything were to ever happen to his guy, Trump, then he thinks it'd be time to take up arms again. People are wanting retaliation. They want revenge. They want payback for a lot of things. This abortion crap. Uh, what happened to Lavoie? What is happening to our children? What is happening to the, our streets? What is happening to our schools? People want 
uh, retribution for that. They want, they want the shit stopped. I still don't know what to make of Keebler. I'm not sure he can really tell us anything about Glenn Jones. But if you look at Keebler and what changed before and after the Bunkerville and Malheur standoffs, the biggest difference is that afterward, the FBI turned his world upside down and pushed him toward violence. It's not illegal to believe racist things. Our country was built on the idea that you have the right to complain about the government. So it's not really clear to me if the FBI's own conspiring to get Keebler helped take a dangerous guy off the streets for a few years or made a blowhard into a radical who could snap if the political winds change. But what I do think Keebler's case makes clear is that he's somebody who can be influenced into taking action. Keebler's paranoia and belief in nearly every conspiracy he comes across seems to open this crack in his worldview that seemingly anyone can exploit. He's an attack dog waiting for a command. It happened with the FBI when he pushed the button, and it happened with Lavoie Finicum when he plotted to trap BLM agents. In a memo included with his court records, the government wrote that after Keebler pushed the button on their bomb, he told the agents, this isn't about Lavoie, it's what he stood for. So Keebler and Glenn Jones make at least two people in a two-month time frame invoking Finicum's name as they carried out a violent action. Which got me wondering about how many more people were influenced by what Finicum supposedly stood for, and if those people really knew what he stood for, or if they had just, as Keebler might say, read it on the internet. Finicum seems to have this outsized influence on the Patriot movement because he died. So why do some deaths fade away and others become catalysts for violence? That's next time on Bundyville. That was Leah Satilli, host of Bundyville. This episode was written and produced by Leah, Ryan Hass, and me, Peter Fergret. Music and sound design by Robbie Carver. Bundyville has editorial oversight from Kelly Stout, Mike Dang, and Anna Griffin. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Research help from Kim Frieda. Special thanks to David Stuckey. This episode was brought to you by Strava, the best app for runners and cyclists. Find their new podcast, Athletes Unfiltered, produced by the team here at Outside, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Athletes Unfiltered. Bundyville is a co-production of Long Reads and Oregon Public Broadcasting. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.